Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. C. Renee James will join us to discuss cosmic chaos. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the universe is quite the chaotic place. Joining us today is Dr. C. Renee James. Dr. James is a professor of physics and astronomy at Sam Houston State University. She's the author of Science Unshackled and also Seven Wonders of the Universe that you probably took for granted. She has penned the new book, Things That Go Bump in the Universe, How Astronomers Decode Cosmic Chaos. Dr. James, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. All right. Thanks for having me. How does it that astronomers know what they know? And I'm curious why you decided to put the book together. Because I didn't know how astronomers knew what they knew about some of these topics. You know, very specialized topics that you get into when you're doing research and perhaps in your graduate program. And when I was in my graduate program, I really only focused on stars that didn't do anything weird. Like they were completely well-behaved stars. But down the hall, people were talking about supernova and cool things going on. And, oh, wait, what happens if white dwarfs collide? And is it possible that neutron stars will collide? And what kinds of weird things can we see from that? And I just kind of went, that sounds really cool. And it was one of those things that just kind of stayed in the back of my mind literally for a couple of decades was I really love the fascinating, violent, weird stuff that's out there. So in 2016, I had the absolute privilege to go work with a number of scientists over in Australia. And that was when we had the announcement of the first verified gravitational wave detection, where we literally were measuring space-time rippling because two monstrous black holes slammed into each other. And at that point, I just went, that's it. I've got to write a book about these things. The universe just has really too many things going on that I don't think a lot of people know about because it seems really quiet, right? You go outside, you walk your dog, you look up, you're like, oh, look, twinkly little stars. In the time that it takes to walk your dog, thousands of stars have blown up in the universe somewhere. That was sort of my motivation. I just thought it was really cool. That is perhaps the epitome of the title of your book, and it takes something very massive to create those gravitational waves. One of the things that I found out as I was working on this, you know, people think, oh, you're an astronomer, you know all about astronomy. I'm like, no, I, I really know this tiny little sliver extraordinarily well. And so I wanted to know more. And I wanted to take people on that sort of journey of discovery, going through these things and, and talking to all of the scientists that are working in these different fields that involve something going bump in the universe, which isn't necessarily just things exploding. It's things that are coming together or things whose crusts are shifting somehow or another. You think with something that's pumping out just an incredible quantity of energy, like, for instance, with the two black holes that collided, that created more energy for that tenth of a second than every single star in the observable universe put together. But we had to create 
the most exquisitely sensitive detectors to be able to pick that signal up. You know, I just found it a, a really fascinating ride to learn about the ingenuity of all of the scientists and engineers, the theorists and, and the observers and everything as they go about trying to detect and then make sense of some of the things that, that are going on out there. And it kind of boggled my mind. It was like the more violent the thing is that they were trying to look at, the harder it was to find it. It was this weird paradox out there. These projects are so massive and they involve so many different parts that it's almost impossible to know all the different avenues in astronomy. It really is. I mean, if you are a person that is studying, for instance, neutron stars, there are so many ways that you can go with these. These are the leftover corpses of really massive stars after the rest of the star has gone supernova is this thing that's about the size of a city, but is so dense that it's like a mountain crammed into a teaspoon. And I think, okay, well, that's pretty extreme. But honestly, how many people do you really need to be able to figure these sorts of things out? And there's just legions of astronomers that are working on the theoretical side of neutron stars and then the observational side of neutron stars. And then what happens if you've got a neutron star that's maybe in a system with another neutron star or maybe a neutron star that's in a system with a regular star? And and how can we detect these with this type of light or that type of light or gravitational waves? And so every single one of those people has a fairly narrow focus and it's still about the same basic object. Did you see the threads connecting of advances in one part of astronomy then led to an insight in another? Oh, absolutely. There were a number of threads that I noticed as I went through this. And then one of them I thought was kind of amusing. And that was that over the centuries, astronomers have been very reluctant to accept that the universe is as misbehaved as it is. You look out, you go twinkly stars. And for the longest time, we thought, well, nothing really changes in this universe. You know, maybe there's a few things that change a little bit, but you don't have like really monstrous changes. And then every now and then a brand new star will pop up and people go like, hmm, that's um, don't know about that. There's a bright thing. Stayed there for a while, went away. We'll try to ignore that. Right. And then when you start getting astronomy, a respectable science, which honestly didn't happen until you get to like the 17, 1800s. You know, a science that makes predictions that you can you can test, a science that is more than just I'm finding the positions of things. They start realizing, oh, that's a thing that looked really bright from where we're sitting. And there's one school of thought that says that that thing is stupidly far away. It's that bright from where we're sitting. It must be really stupidly powerful. And that's impossible. Right. And so there were so many times that that exact set of stuff went out. Oh, we saw a thing. We got this much energy from it. Oh, God, there's the only reason we could get that much energy from something that distant is that it's unbelievably powerful. And this happened in the 1800s. This happened in the 1900s. This is still happening these days where people are just like, oh, my goodness, I had no idea that the universe had had this capability to make something this monstrously powerful and that we're detecting this stuff. For the longest period, our only means was the electromagnetic radiation, and now we've gone to the, these gravity waves, and the deeper insights are going to come. Oh, absolutely. One of the things that kind of blew me away when I was talking to the astronomers I feature in this book, at the very beginning, for instance, we're trying to, the first time somebody literally tried to go out and discover exploding stars on purpose, they had to do these, these crazy long surveys, managed a few dozen of these exploding stars. And then we got really good at it, right? And so now these days we're picking up literally tens of thousands per year stars exploding in other galaxies. And so you're able to do some really amazing 
statistical analyses with these sorts of numbers, right? You've got tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of these things. You can you can really start to build up some good pictures of, of how things are working. Gravitational waves, though, at this point in time, we have 90 detections. So we're like right at the beginning of using these things as anything other than we will study these 90 things. But one of the people I was talking to said, oh yeah, in the future, when we start getting hundreds of thousands of these gravitational wave detections, we'll be able to do these sorts of big picture kinds of analyses about what the universe has been doing. And I just went like, holy cow, hundreds of thousands. We've got 90, not 90,000. We've got 90. We're going to build up this amazing database in the future. And she was completely serious. It was not a thing that was like, you know, if only we had the technology to do this. It was, yeah, this is the, this is the track it's going to take because this is the track we took with observing stars to begin with and then observing supernovae. And we're astonishingly good at getting, once we've got the technology figured out, at really ramping that up and getting these huge databases that in many cases tell you what's going on in the entire history of the universe, which is absolutely mind-boggling point out these huge data sets that allow you to make better predictions about what is going to occur in a picture of the universe and where it's heading. Well, there's a particular type of supernova exploding star that allows us to get really good distance estimates on things. And so, you know, with the really good distance estimates coupled with the fact that we're using this technology to determine how fast something's moving, you know, we get a pretty good picture of the growth rate of the universe at different times in the past 13.7 billion years. And back in the late 1990s, they went, oh, it's accelerating. It's getting bigger faster than we were expecting it to for parts of its history. And that was just not the thing that anybody was expecting. At this point, we're two decades after that and everything's sort of settled down. Enough. Explain that with something called dark energy into an expansion that goes beyond what we would expect. But I had to devote an entire chapter to this theoretical last thing. There's a theorist astronomer, Matt Kaplan, who basically just decided, I don't care if I will ever observe this or if anybody will ever observe this. Theoretically, I just think it's a cool problem. And the problem was, what happens if you just wait long enough? What happens to something that's like the, the dead core of a star a bit more massive than the sun? And you just wait. And you wait 10 to the 100 years. You know, there's one with 100 zeros after it. And after 10 to 100 years, not much is going on with this particular dead core of a star. And then you wait some more. And once you start getting into numbers like 10 to the power of 1,500, which is one with 1,500 zeros after it, years, then some of these dead star cores will start to have things going on on the inside that is basically an extraordinarily slow fusion process where you start popping out the things that are holding this object up. And depending on just how massive this thing is, you wait a bit longer, everything else in the entire universe is basically gone, except for things like this. And everything that's like this has its own personal space that's about the size of our current universe and getting bigger. And you wait, and eventually what can happen is that just because of the way things work on the scales of the very tiny, you'll start popping out the things that are holding up your star, and then it will undergo this collapse, and then the whole thing will explode. And that'll be the last thing that ever happens. And this can happen possibly 10 to the 33,000 years from now. Yeah, not 33,000, one with 33,000 zeros after it. And when I heard that story, I just went, oh my God, 
how do you think about things like that? I mean, the creativity of all of these astronomers that I talked to and pretty much all of them that I didn't talk to, it's amazing to first of all, think of this problem and then figure out how you would solve it and then come up with this bizarre answer of, here's the last thing that's ever gonna happen. You know, when we're talking about the cosmic scale, that's the thing, and it's boiled down to human dimensions, but in some ways we just can't really know the cosmic scale. No, I mean, that's the thing, is like the book begins with, okay, this is a really powerful event, this is beyond anything we could imagine, and it just basically just keeps going in that direction. Every chapter is, oh, well that was a surprise, and by the time you get halfway through the book, closer to the end, all of the things that used to be, oh my goodness, that would be impossible, are now just taken as a given. And this is the sort of thinking that has only evolved over about the past hundred years. What do you see then are the things that are keeping astronomers <laughs> figuratively up at night? What don't we know about the big problems that astronomy is facing? Okay. One of the big problems that we're facing, honestly, is the fact that we are capable of generating Netflix levels of data you know, on a nightly basis. And knowing that there's so much going on that we don't know, we don't even know what we don't know. But we have so much data coming in, we're not sure necessarily how to find some of the things that we don't know. Because right now what we do is we, you know, have computer algorithms that do a lot of this early sifting. And so like, ah, oh, I'll get rid of this. This isn't the type of thing that we're looking for. We're only going to keep this little subset of data over here. You know, and the computer's already gone through it and kicked out some things, but it may be kicking out some really magical unicorns for all we know. But you can't go through it by hand. And so the, the big challenge is, is going to be how can we get computers to be creative about what they're looking for instead of saying, I want you to look for this type of signal. You know, well, we obviously already know that type of signal is a thing. I want you to look for something that we don't know, that we can maybe try to sort that out. And that, like I said, we are getting literally Netflix libraries worth of data from so many different facilities all over the planet. And heaven knows what's in there. The next great leap forward in astronomy, the next great awesome discovery has probably already been made. We just don't know it because it's, it's buried in all the, all the data. People picking up the book, maybe the students that are interested in astronomy or individuals interested in cosmos, what would you like them to take home from reading your book? Mostly that the universe is a really busy place, despite what it looks like. But also there's a lot of, there's a lot of it that just sort of feels very familiar, right? We all know what it's like to explode at people or cave in on our own selves or we collide with people all the time and, you know, you get some really interesting results from things that are like random collisions. And so, you know, these are our cousins we're talking about here. And once you find out about them, those things that go bump in the night don't seem quite so scary anymore. We were talking with Dr. C. Renee James, her new book, Things That Go Bump in the Universe. How Astronomers Decode Cosmic Chaos. Dr. James, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. All right, thanks for having me on. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.